Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Dr. Alan Tanabe. Dr. Tanabe graduated from Ferris State in 1991 with his BS in Farm, so he was actually before the PharmD program, but did go back and get his PharmD from the University of Colorado in 2017. He's also worked with the same company since 1989, which, not to date him a little bit, but I was born in 85, so you've been doing this as, <laughs> about as long as I have, Dr. Tanabe. Um, he, he's also a pre- preceptor for the University of Michigan for about 20 years and won Preceptor of the Year back in 2015. Uh, what other roles or experience do you have in pharmacy do you want to share with some of the listeners, Dr. Tanabe? Well, I'll tell you, thank you for the kind introduction. And pharmacy sure has changed a lot since I started practicing as a licensed pharmacist in 1991. When you think about when I came out as a licensed pharmacist, yes, the major focus was filling prescriptions. We didn't even think about or discuss ideas such as MTM services or administering vaccination, point of care services. So it just demonstrates the quick evolution and how quickly things can change in our profession. And that also shows the importance of a pharmacist being adaptable and being ready to embrace those changes. I think when we face certain situations, when we're resistant to changes, that really hampers not only our personal professionalism, but it hampers the profession as well for the future pharmacists and for patient care overall. So some of those things that I'd like to have been involved with include I've taken on a head role for MTM services with both Outcomes and Maritza with our company in our region. As you mentioned, I've been a preceptor for a lot of students. I like giving presentations to the College of Pharmacy when I'm invited to do so. I love participating in off-site activities, including when we do community screenings for blood pressure, blood glucose, and lipid levels. And then a few years ago, our company formed a partnership with Michigan Medicine, where it it was really a terrific program that's still going on, as a matter of fact, where the partnership allowed us access to the EHR, electronic health records, of patients of Michigan Medicine who either had hypertension or prehypertension and gave the patient the option of, instead of having to go back to the physician's office on a regular basis, they could actually come to our pharmacy, whether they were getting their prescriptions filled at our pharmacy or not, they could come to our pharmacy, sit down with some of us trained pharmacists, where we would do an overall assessment of their blood pressure control, talk to them about what do they think about their medications, any adherence problems, any barriers such as side effects, what do they think about their medications. We would assess their sodium intake, physical activity, hereditary factors, all of this. And at first, as you can imagine, there was some pushback from some physicians, I think, who felt like, well, wait a minute, so pharmacists are going to take over this role for us? And we were very adamant about saying, well, we're not trying to take over anything. We're trying to be something to help complement patient care for you. We're trying to take some of the work and some of the burden off of you so we can take care of these patients and what we can do through our screening and our assessment, we can just relay this information to you along with recommendations. And it's really turned out to be a wonderful program where to date, I think we have about 92 and 93% success rate as, as far as the PCPs accepting our recommendations for any kind of medication or dose changes. And somewhere around 70% of the patients who have seen more than once at our clinics have 
demonstrated improved blood pressure control. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Obviously, blood pressure control factors into a lot of different things, whether it be heart attacks, uh, kidney failure, longevity, just in general. And the fact that want well, to downplay that you had a BS and you got your PharmD, but a lot more of the PharmD students are kind of trained that way, whereas a lot of the BS students who are a little bit older weren't when it comes to working with physicians in the sort of manner you described. I think that's awesome that you were able to kind of make that transition with the University of Michigan Medicine, it sounds like, and kind of bridge that gap to really really lead the way for the PharmDs that were coming up. In fact, it sounds like you kind of, through your hard work, earned your PharmD before you actually earned your PharmD. So I think that's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, it certainly was a rewarding, although challenging experience to go and get the PharmD while you're still working full-time, yeah. taking care of a family. But at the same time, it, it's important, like I said, that pharmacists embrace the idea that we can continue to expand our outreach and expand our clinical impact on patient care. Also, at the same time, maybe sounding a little bit selfish, I need to make sure that I keep myself marketable <laughs> as far as personally, you know, having been a practicing pharmacist with a BS degree as opposed to a PharmD degree for a long time, I certainly don't consider myself to be a better pharmacist than anybody who doesn't have a PharmD degree. But at the same time, whatever you can do to sharpen and expand your clinical knowledge and skills, it's going to help you. Oh, yeah. And especially with, like you said, the changing environment we're, we're in now, where we're having more of the, the patient care, the MTM, that when you were in school wasn't even around. And heck, probably even wasn't until, I mean, it started more than 10 years ago, but really 10 years is when it took off. And you've been practicing for about 30. So, right. you know, major change there. And the fact that you, could, you were able to bridge that is just awesome to hear, especially when you're talking about some of the role reversals where you're now making recommendations to physicians or the traditional prescribers, if you will. And the fact that they're accepting 93 plus percent of them is almost unheard of, but really awesome to hear that they're that open to working with you on that. I can't, I can't express enough how awesome that part of it is. And I'm glad no, to hear thank that. You. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, no problem. You did all the work. Well, hey, the main reason I wanted you on the podcast today was something that you actually shared. And I had a very similar sentiment. So we're going to be in agreement on a lot of this, but I'm going to talk a few different angles about it was there was a vending machine type of pharmacy. If I remember correctly, it was a vending machine that dispensed prescriptions to people. And you shared it with a little bit of tongue in cheek with kind of this, what you said with it. And I read it and I was like, I totally agree with you. And this is not the way we need to really move pharmacy for a number of reasons. So we're kind of going to vet through that a little bit. Can you elaborate on why some people might want to be able to walk up to a vetting machine and just get their prescription that way? Well, yeah, I can understand the idea behind it. But again, I question how much long-term thought and overall impact on patient care this is having. Now, say you've been out and you're really thirsty and you want to go get a Coke at the vending machine, you go to the vending machine and you find out that it's out. That's going to be heartbreaking. Um, yeah. I don't want to equate prescription medications and patient care to something like that. As I had been describing in the introduction in our previous discussion, is that what I want to do is expand our clinical outreach. And if I'm all in favor of moving the role of the pharmacist in patient care forward, I feel that this detracts from that. Now, you and I, having worked in community pharmacy for so long, how many times when we start to incorporate new services like administering vaccinations or point-of-care services or MTM services, how many times do we hear from patients, 
I didn't know pharmacists did that. Oh, all the time. <laughs> exactly. So that's what my goal for our profession is to keep moving forward that way. I strongly feel this takes away from the progress that pharmacy needs to make to keep ourselves moving forward clinically. No, I totally agree with you. And part of that is because I don't know how many times I've had people walk up with prescriptions and then even to what they presented me, there's an interpretation to it. For example, I have somebody who will walk in from the dentist with just like a Norco prescription. The first thing I think of is, okay, you want the dentist, there's a high infection rate with a lot of mouth things just from the bacteria that's in your mouth. Did they give you an antibiotic prescription? And sometimes they go, oh, well, yeah, I have it here. They didn't really think to give it to me because they just knew they were in pain and wanted something for pain. But me being able to ask them, hey, did you have an antibiotic prescription? Oh, yeah, that's probably the more important one. And then tell them that I now completely changed the medication that they were going to receive for the better to help them get over the ailment that they needed. And that's just one example we see a lot in community pharmacy. Absolutely. And in addition, I strongly believe that the relationship that you form between the pharmacist and your patients has a great impact on their health-related outcomes. I know that some of the pushback I received about my comments about the vending machines of prescription medications, they've said, well, they'll have a phone there and a video screen so you could talk to a pharmacist if you do have any questions. Well, when you think about how many times when we're dispensing medications and it comes with an information sheet, how many of the patients are actually reading through that information sheet? And in addition, how many of those patients fully understand what the <laughs> information sheet is actually saying? And, it, and the vending machines, I think, don't really take that into account. Quite often when people come up to our counter and we ask, okay, what can I fill for you today? And they just say, well, just fill everything. Yeah. And we say, well, can you tell me the names of the medications? And the, the patient says, well, you should have it all on there. I don't know the names. That's part of your job. And it's like, okay, well, here's an educational opportunity. So I can yeah. go over these with the patient and make sure he or she understands what medications. Now, if you just pick up a phone and talking to the screen, I just feel like you're missing that human component. Yes, somebody may be able to answer some questions about it, but are you really forming that patient-pharmacist-health professional relationship that I think is all so important to establishing that trust that can lead to better health outcomes? Oh, totally. And what I think of is how many times that, and I'm not sure if Michigan law is the same as Ohio where I practice, but we always have to ask them if they have any questions. That's part of the law every single time. Yes. So the technician mm -hmm. will ask them, do you have any questions for the pharmacist today? Or do you have any questions about your medications? However they phrase it. And so many times the patient will go, no, I don't have any questions. And they walk away from the counter and then they think of something. And as soon as they turn around, they walk right over the pharmacist and they go, yeah, I have a question. <laughs> and in working community, you're kind of like, oh, why did you just ask that to begin with? But at the same time, with this, the vending machine proposal, even if they had a phone there, now they have to turn around and pick up the phone, dial the phone, call in, possibly wait for somebody. Whereas before, like you said, we're so accessible, we were right there. We're able to make that right. difference. When you put a phone there, it's one more screen. It's one more barrier. And you can't necessarily get the same care because you might not feel the same way talking to a screen that you do talking to a person. And I know I've had countless times where somebody who's been coming there a few times has felt like they can open up to me or, you know, even after they've been taking it for a couple months, now they have a question. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, you know, I've been getting this for you from a few months. You said you told me this the first time. But I have another question, you know, and I want to follow up with that. And they want to speak with specifically me because they talked to me the first time. Whereas with the vending machine you or some of these other methods that they have, with you might have to call somebody to talk to a screen. You might not have that option to speak to the same person. I know Loretta Bosing was on earlier talking about mail order pharmacy. 
And that was one of her complaints is I want to be able to talk to the same people so that I can get the same care and that they can keep taking it one step further in my care each and every time. Absolutely. I fully agree with you, Eric. Some additional examples I can come up with in my experiences when offering MTM services to some of these patients. At first, they think, well, no, my doctor knows what I'm on. I think I know what I'm on. I don't think I need this. But then through talking to them a little bit, they say, okay, let's go over the medications. And the language and the approach you use makes a big difference to make sure that the patient's understanding what you're talking about. And you want to make sure that the patient feels like he or she has a say in their therapies as opposed to us just saying, okay, you need to take this once a day. You need to take this twice a day. We need to open up that conversation with the patient to make sure that they're getting involved. And there have been times where patients at first said, no, I don't think I need it. I think I'm good with this. But by the end, they say, wow, I have a much better understanding about my medications. I'm really glad. Or maybe as we're talking about it, they open up about, well, yes, now that you bring it up, there is this barrier where I don't understand why this one's so expensive. Why do I have to take it? Or, yeah, yeah since they've increased my dose of this medication, I have noticed these effects. So, again, it just goes back to that relationship that you can form between the pharmacist and the patient that's so important. And the information sheets you're talking about, like especially some of the uh, the ones we're mandated to give out for the black box medications, mm-hmm. they can be very intimidating. And I'm sure you've had this too, where you have somebody who goes home and reads it and goes, I'm experiencing every single side effect. Yes. And then you know, you're going through it and you're like, well, that's not really a side effect. That's supposed to happen. You might get a little dizzy when you start a new blood pressure medication. As long as it's not bad, your body will adjust to it within a, a few days, week, what, whatever it is for that medication. You have to get a little bit of interpretive information with that because I can give you all the information in the world. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's tailored to you. And it doesn't mean that what you're experiencing is wrong or is the bad part of that medication, for example. And that's why I always thought if we need someone there so they can call and be able to, to help with those basic interpretation skills because we all know that the average person – one, obviously isn't as educated as most of the pharmacists are, but two, also speaks and reads at basically a high elementary school level. So there's when you read those sheets, I have a hard time reading them sometimes. Those words are so big. So right. <laughs> yeah, it makes it very complicated. And an example that I commonly share with my colleagues and students is, say somebody's getting a medication like prednisone for the first time. I literally could spend 15 minutes talking <laughs> to them about the side effects of prednisone. When I'm done, they're likely not going to say, no, no, thank you. I don't want to take it after all. So if if we're just relying on them reading the information sheet, it doesn't surprise me a bit that they don't feel really comfortable or they have some questions about the medications, but they're not really sure about what to do. Yeah. And I always think of like lisinopril. I remember this one time I had someone call and we think of it as pretty mundane in pharmacy. And they go, I'm not going to take this. I read all these side effects. And then they started going through them. And I'm like, you know, the odds of those are all pretty slim and pretty rare for the dose you're on. You're on five milligrams here. Just take mm-hmm. it. Come back. and Let's check your blood pressure. And then when they came back, they're like, oh, yeah, my blood pressure is good. And I'm like, okay, well, what was it before? They're like, well, it's down to 150 over 95 on average. And I'm like, well, that's still pretty high. They're like, well, it was 180. And I'm like, well, okay, it's better. But we, if we dial that in a little bit more, it's going to help you further down the line. So let's... Let's talk to your doctor and let's make that change or let's suggest that and see what he says. And Absolutely. Little things like that. And again, it's all about interpretation. They thought it was better and it was, but it wasn't where it needs to be. And it was the, going that extra like half a step that we could do that might not happen with that interaction when you're talking about a vending machine or makes it very difficult because there's another barrier for them to do that. Right. Absolutely. And one thing I, in prepping for this episode you brought up too was the access of it. Pharmacies mm-hmm. are 
actually probably super, super, super accessible in America. There's some rural areas that have been given, been made into kind of pharmacy or healthcare deserts with some of the reimbursement models that are currently out there with PBMs, but that's for another day. One thing you said was currently nine out of 10 Americans live within five miles of a community pharmacy. Yes. And in metropolitan areas, the average person lives 1.83 miles. So we'll say one and a half to two miles. Okay. That's super close. So why would we necessarily even need a vending machine to fill in that gap of one mile? Right. I, I agree with that. Now, to take the other side a little bit, I can understand that some people are going to have some transportation issues. Maybe some people work odd hours during the day or night, which doesn't coincide very well with the operation hours of the pharmacy that's closest to them. So for that argument, I can see the idea, okay, why don't we make it easier for them and have that vending machine? But again, we're, we're just talking about if it's just convenience, the way to go about it is, is not just have a box there with the medications in it where they can push B, sits and get whatever medication they want. Why don't we change the way that some of these community pharmacies are operating? And as you alluded to a little bit with PBMs and DIRs and some of the challenges that pharmacies are facing right now, if we can improve upon that and get improved pharmacy reimbursements and DIR regulation, that may enable the pharmacy to expand direct patient care in a way that maybe we can deliver or maybe we can visit some of these patients who yep. have these issues as opposed to just entrusting a vending machine. Or even expanding just our hours. I know stores I've worked at in the past couple of years, I've seen their, their opening and closing hours get narrowed down a little bit. And it might only be, you know, it went from, say, 7 to 10 or 8 to 10 to 9 to 9. But that might make a big difference for somebody if they get off of work at 9 o'clock and they work right. a 12-hour shift like I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And an interesting thing that you brought up about the convenience factor. So I found a recent article, I think it was from January 2019 from the Harvard Business Review. There was a study performed where they found about 250 patients who had been determined to be non-adherent with their medications. And they split them up into two different groups and say, okay, this one we're going to take a passive approach to see if we can improve their adherence. And this one we're going to take a more proactive approach to improve their adherence. But before even getting into that, they talked to the patients, well, why, what barriers are keeping you from remaining adherent to their medications? And there were a lot of them that you would imagine. I think about half of them said that they didn't fully understand why they were taking certain medications. About a third of the patients said that they were overwhelmed by the complexity of their medication regimen. So when you throw that in there along with costs, side effects, uh, patients not being properly, properly educated on their medications. It gets to be very confusing, but interesting enough in that article, what really wasn't so much addressed or stated by these patients was the inability to get access to these medications. Yeah. Understanding the drugs is, is definitely the hard part. I can figure out a way to get you the medication. <laughs> I can, mm -hmm. that's, that's the easy part. That's what the vending machine fills in. But the same point is if you give it to them, but they don't know anything about it, what's the point? Like I can go buy a car, but if I don't know how to drive it, what's the point of me owning a car? That's a great analogy. I like that. And that's why on a previous podcast here, just posted recently, I was talking with Dean Neil McKinnon from the University of Cincinnati, and he was saying how Canada has a much higher reimbursement fee and all the all their services that they pay for, for counseling patients and interacting with them to help them better understand their medications or improve their health. 
And I'm not going to say Canada system's perfect, but with that part of it, I feel like that would be something that we need to see a major improvement on in the United States with provider status or some of the changing the PBM reimbursement models like we're talking about, with even just simple DIR fees, right? That right. alone would, I think it would put, if I remember correctly, $9.1 billion a year back into community pharmacies from the PBMs, which is $9.1 billion is a lot of money we can use to make sure pharmacists have longer hours and are counseling patients. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people, both in pharmacy and some outside of pharmacy, don't fully understand is the, the way that DIRs came to be was the idea, well, we're going to make sure that we're going to hold these pharmacies and health professionals to these standards to make sure that there's better adherence and that will lead to fewer health-related complications, fewer hospitalizations, fewer procedures. It's going to decrease healthcare overall, and we're going to pass on these savings down to our members. So what I always ask people is how many people here are jumping up and down for joy because their healthcare costs have decreased? So <laughs> have yet to have anybody reply positive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have these pharmacies who are being squeezed out of any potential profitability and squeezed out of operation costs where, you know, we want to expand these services to these patients. We want to make things more readily accessible and we want to take that step to be a bigger part of patient care. But the way that things are set up right now, it makes it very, very difficult to achieve that. Yeah, and I think we even saw that play out in some of the recent presidential debates when I'm thinking about it here with uh, Andrew Yang and at least one or two debates reference pharmacists of people who are going to need a career change or mm-hmm. are going to be facing different market forces that might push us out. And I think of things like this vending machine. What I don't think about, and I, I mean, I actually really like the guy as a candidate. I think he was a good change agent to bring up different ideas and bring up like not necessarily a binary choice of it's either this or this. He would always look for a third route, which I really liked. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that he was looking at was just getting people their prescriptions. He wasn't looking at all the cognitive services that we could necessarily present to people. It was right. exactly what we're talking about. And yeah, okay, maybe getting them the medication is 75% of what we do or the factor we play in healthcare. But that last 25% can make and break a huge difference for people. You can prevent strokes, heart attacks, massive expenditures just by simply counseling somebody, helping them understand their medication, like you pointed out in the Harvard Business Review article. Getting the medication wasn't the problem. It was the understanding of it, how to use it properly, was the thing that people felt intimidated, scared, and didn't know about. Right. And you bring up a good point because another point that was brought up in that Harvard Business Review article is the World Health Organization actually determined that increasing the efficacy of the adherence instructions for these patients may have a greater impact for the health of the population than any improvement in a specific for medical treatment. So, you know, we're looking at something that can have a major impact on overall health care, overall cost of health care, everything across the board with literally, if it's done right, in my opinion, It'd be win for the pharmacist, win for the patient, win for the physicians, win for the organizations. Win for the um, taxpayers. Across the board. <laughs> the other thing that you kind of mentioned when we were prepping for this was vending machines really can't help with the potential of deprescribing that we talked about yes. with Sue Paul in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Oh, again, when we talk to patients, whether it be doing MTM services or whether they come up and say, hey, just fill everything. And then they, when we ask them, well, what are you using this for? Let's take amitriptyline. They're like, I don't know. My doctor's always had me take it, so I take it. 
what Sue, Paul, and you together had pointed out so effectively during the previous podcast is pharmacists are not there just to put you on more medications. A significant part is determining maybe you don't need this anymore. Not only is it maybe an unnecessary expense, it may be adversely affecting the therapy of the other medications that you're on, or maybe contributing to these side effects that you've been experiencing. Now, you likely have experienced like I have with some patients, especially with some of the older patients when we talk to them about their medications. They experience some of these effects and say, well, I figure it's just part of getting old, so I just deal with it. And we talk to them, it's like, well, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. And as a matter of fact, these particular medications may be contributing to it. So if you'd like, I can talk to your provider about it and see if this is something you even need to be on. So again, you're looking at potentially saving the patient money. You're looking to reduce the pill burden. You're looking to improve the complexity of the drug regimen. So deprescribing can be a huge part of what we do. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And if no one has listened to that previous episode, please go back and listen to it. Sue Paul's a rock star amongst pharmacists, and I love the work she's doing down there. The other thing, and I don't know if you've done this, I actually worked at a pharmacy that had a quote-unquote vending machine, if you will. And it had a lot of technical issues that the pharmacy had our own issues, but we figured figured them out pretty quick. But the patients, a lot of times, the vending machine didn't give them a gray area. And what I mean by that is they would walk up and they had to be able to punch in the, if I remember correctly, it's been a little while, the patient's last name, the first name, their phone number and date of birth, or like their date of birth and address. They had to confirm three different things. And sometimes you had a neighbor who was coming to help somebody out and they might not, they might know two of them, but that they couldn't get the prescription. And they sat there getting frustrated, frustrated, frustrated with it. And then they eventually come to the pharmacy counter. We have to give it to them anyway. At that point, you defeated the whole purpose of even having the vending machine. And I know, I know you've experienced this because I've experienced it everywhere I go, almost every single day, definitely every week where somebody's doing something like that to help someone out and you talk to them and they're like, well, I'm here to pick up so-and-so's medication and we're trying to confirm Mm -hmm. things. We're then having to, you know, go check or go call the patient or do something to make sure that we're giving them the right medication. Right. For the and right then person. Where I work, uh, when a person comes to pick up a medication, yes, we have to confirm their date of birth, the patient name. We like to go over, okay, these are the medications that you're getting. But if you're relying on a, on a vending machine where you have to input all of that information or type in all of that information, also poses a problem for somebody who may have dexterity problems or impaired vision. Yep. We've, we've had that happen a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's, again, why I think you know, the vending machine, I think it looks like a, an easy Band-Aid, like an easy patch, right? But in this case, what we do isn't so black and white. And that's why I think we're trying to really make sure it's clear here is what we do does have some professionalism to it, does have some knowledge to it. It's not just pills in a bottle label out the door. Right. This is one of the things that, again, I, I talk about a lot is when, when you ask what is somebody's perception of what a community pharmacist does? Now you can divide it into two two different groups. You can ask a group of health professionals. And yes, you can make the argument that pharmacists don't get the full respect and acknowledgement that they deserve, but that's a story for another podcast, I'm sure. (laughs) But in general, other health professionals are going to realize that we're a vital component of patient care. Uh, We are clinical practitioners. We're a great source of information and we're patient advocates. Now, if you ask the general public, a lot of them, the first thing that comes to mind is count poor licking stick. <laughs> oh, I have to go to my pharmacy. This is going to cost me another $200. But at the same time, I can ask that person OTC recommendations so I don't have to go to the doctor. I can get my flu shot so I don't have to go to the doctor. 
And it all goes back to what we said before, how many people said, I didn't know pharmacists did that. So that's what I think we need to work on is improving the message that we're getting out so patients are readily accepting that, yes, I can go to my pharmacist for this. Let's just look at some of the recent news articles that have been out there with not just pharmacist burnout, but like physician burnout and prescriber burnout, where they're getting these automated auto-refill medications from computer systems that patients shouldn't have been on. And in some cases, they might go and approve them without thinking about it, or without double-checking, because they're so overwhelmed with everything they're doing. But if nothing else, they had to stop providing care to somebody to go read that or go check that or add one more thing to their workload. Right. That's where something like a vending machine would do that. Oh, they're out of refills? Automatically send. But we mm-hmm. might realize, oh, they're out of refills. It's been 13 months since they were last seen. You should probably go get seen to make sure that we're following up on this. Hadn't yeah. Been, yeah, if they had not been recently assessed, especially if they had gone through some changes in their medication regimen. Maybe they had a change yep. and they're now on three different diabetes medications or three different blood pressure medications. But some of the doses had to be adjusted. So what's going to be a safeguard with a vending machine to make sure that patient is getting the appropriate medication and the appropriate dose? Yeah, and I've seen where, again, computers are great when they work, but in another case, it was automatically refilling their prescription for metformin. It would refill their 500 and then it would refill their 850s. And now they're getting two different doses. And fortunately, one of them did get through like that. And the patient for about a week, they're like, why am I taking so much of this drug? But they were taking it for a full week, which should have been the case. But the automatic refill kind of propagated that. And what caused it, a little bit of us pharmacists being overwhelmed by some of the things that the low staffing, the bad reimbursements that have caused that, that, well, that one got through. And then we had to have them bring it back in. We had to talk with them, make sure there's no issues let their doctor know, cancel the one, straighten it all out for them. But again, that was something there's no way a vending machine could have tackled that problem. And if it did tackle it, it might have done it the exact opposite way where it stopped it early on and says, we can't refill this because you have this one. We need to get clarification. Well, in that case, we now created the doctor, called the doctor's office again, created another point of contact, another burden for them, and possibly mm-hmm. delayed the patient getting their medication. Right. So it, it, it seems to go one extreme or the other with the technology and we need that gray matter in between to fill in the gray area, if you will. I agree. And I'm sure you've experienced instances like I have where uh, patient therapy might go outside of the recommended guidelines. And yep. how is a how is a vending machine going to determine or make the judgment calls like, well, do I need to follow up with the physician or are we going to just go ahead and blindly dispense this? Yeah. And I've mentioned this before. I've for some reason, I've had some issues with sertraline in my area prescribing. And there was a doctor who was writing for 300 milligrams a day. Every guideline you see says 200 max dose, hard stop. Mm-hmm. Called their office, talked with them a little bit, and it ended up being, yeah, they, they wanted it. They gave me a study or at least a protocol of what they were doing and why. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, sure, it took a couple hours to get the medication. But in the case of a vending machine, it might have automatically sent them a request. Probably would have been ignored because it would have been clearly from a computer, let's be honest. And it might have taken much longer for them to get that medication. Yeah, absolutely agree. I'm glad we're on the same page with this. And I think that... Oh, it makes it much easier. <laughs> I think that sharing our concerns with, with the listeners helps get out there what we're seeing. Because I want to make sure that, obviously, this is our profession. This is what we do. This is what we're the experts on. We should be the ones who are being consulted with this, not just the business minds or the business powers that be. I agree. I, one of the things that I really want to see, I want to see the health professionals and the actual pharmacists make sure that we take control of our profession, too. Oh, yeah, that's that's something that, again, we're great at following orders, but sometimes when it comes to being that extrovert and that outspoken individual, that's where we drop the ball a little bit. And I, I would say I'm probably not the person who does that, but I've had my moments where I have, and a lot of, a lot of other people definitely need to uh, 
step their game up for lack of a better word to make sure they're being heard when they see something that might not be right or might be questionable to them at the very least. Well, and then you have this uh, relatively recent explosion of more pharmacy schools that leads to more pharmacy school graduates that leads to more pharmacists out there. A lot of them, unfortunately, have a lot of school related debt that they're concerned about and they need to get a job. So this is, I think, uh, good information and hopefully good motivation for them to make sure that it's not just about the job and it's not just about the patient who's directly in front of you at the time that you're filling their prescription. This is about the future of our profession here. We want to keep moving this profession forward to benefit everybody. Yeah, and there's a lot of proof too with with just some of the MTM studies that to at least some degree, the more that's spent on those cognitive services, the more money that's saved in the back end. Absolutely. So I feel like, again, that's one more thing that vending machines can't necessarily fill that role in. And they might have a bit of a place. I did see one interesting article that was published in multiple outlets. I think it was in British Columbia up in Canada where there was an opioid vending machine, which when I first read it, I was thinking, what the hell? And I mean, I'm sure you can think of a hundred things that can go wrong with that too, but it was for addiction services and it would only dispense, I think one or two doses at a time. It was all prescription. They had to have so much um, consultation either with the pharmacist, with the prescriber. And there was a lot of steps that went in there, which, okay, that one I might be able to see because it cuts down on simply waiting and fill time, but there was some consultation services built in. And it was just a, a patch to help kind of correct so they're not using heroin off the street. It was literally that level. It wasn't even Suboxone. I think it was giving them, I think it was hydromorphone, one of those type of medications. It's super strong. And the whole point was they've talked with it, they've expressed concerns, but this is just there as an emergency backup so that you're not using street heroin. And when I read that, I'm like, okay, that one might make a little more sense for the vending machine role. But that's not what we're talking about here with what you had shared about, you know, dispensing blood pressure meds, prescriptions, diabetes meds to patients. Absolutely right. So I'd be interested in reading some of those articles, if if any of them address the security of the medications, because especially if you're talking about opioids, but let's take opioids out of the equation. A lot of these medications are expensive and people sometimes get desperate about, you know, well, I need my medication, but I just can't afford it. Uh, So I'm Another potential concern about these is the security of everything. Yeah, and being someone who works in more urban environment with a lot of crime around where I actually work, we have people who steal baby formula all the time from our shelves, and yes. we're to the point where it's locked up. And you really feel bad to have to even say to them, you got instinct is, hey, don't steal that. But at the same time, they're doing what they have to to put food in their kid's mouth, Can, especially mm-hmm. at that age. It's, a, it's an infant or a child. Can you really fault them at the same time? I mean, they're just doing what they have to do. It's a double-edged sword there to some extent. Right. And with uh, Medicare Part D plans, if somebody's still in that deductible stage or when they hit the donut hole and they haven't hit the catastrophic coverage yet, so all of a sudden their basal insulin, which used to be $100 a month, now it's just skyrocketed to $600 a month. Yeah. And they you know, almost get tears in their eyes as they're in front of you wondering, what am I going to do to make it through the rest of the year? It, it's really it's really difficult. But again, I, I think that just highlights other opportunities that we have as pharmacists, that every challenge like that provides an opportunity where we can get in there, we can help the patient, and we can show them and other health professionals and the public that this is what we can do for you. We're just not here to take pills from a big bottle, put in a little bottle, and take your money. You know, we're here because we really want to help you with your health care. 
kind of boils down to a little bit older reference, but one I'm sure you'll get. I always harken back to this movie and this, the simple title of it just explains it all to me. When you're thinking about what you need to do for somebody or what you need to advocate for, your guiding voice should just say, do the right thing. Right. As long as you think it's the right thing, fight for it, go for it, you know, stand up, do whatever you can for it. And I know that's that's a 1990s movie, but at the same point, that's a that one line is just captures the whole thing. It's just do the right thing, and you're gonna be. Now they're wrong for me to say that to me. That kind of sounds like when Spider-Man said it in whatever Avengers movie. That <laughs> hey guys, remember that really old movie, The Empire Strikes Back? And I think I gained a few extra gray hairs when I heard that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I get it. I'm old. Yeah. Now that some of my texts are 10 and almost 15 years younger than I am, I I've had those moments to myself. All right. Well, hey, two questions I ask everybody. There's one thing you could change about pharmacy. What would it be? Oh, boy. If there was one thing, I guess I would have to make sure that we get nationwide provider status. That would be a good first step. That might relieve some of the pressure as far as these diminishing returns and diminishing reimbursements in the DIR fees. So I would like to see nationwide uh, provider status. All right. I think we've had a few people say that one. And God, I don't think there's anybody who's going to disagree with that who comes on here. Uh, the other question was, if there was one law you could change about pharmacy, whether it be federal or state, what would it be and why? Wow, that's a good one. This may be a little bit outside of the box thinking. I would like to see a change in tort law as far as if an unfortunate error is made and it causes some harm to the patient and, you know, sure, a, a pharmacist and a pharmacy or a company needs to be held accountable to some standard. But I think when you read of some of these lawsuits that are created because of such things, it drives up the, again, it drives up the insurance costs. It drives up the cost of operations, it can really make or break business and make or break a career for a pharmacist. So one thing off the top of my head would be I'd like to see some changes in tort reform. Oh, interesting. I don't think I've had anyone say that yet. And I, I definitely get where you're coming from with that. I, I, I agree with it. I think it'd be interesting to see how you would do that and do it correctly. I not a lawyer, so that would be a tough one for me to answer for certain, but I like where the intent of that is going for sure. Awesome. Well, hey, I, I appreciate you coming on, Dr. Tanabe. Great to have you on here and hear some of your insight. I love when I get another community pharmacist who advocates for the profession the way I do. I, I love the passion that you have there and, and all the work and dedication you put in and all the thought you put in around this this simple topic of pharmacy vending machines is, is much appreciated. So thanks again. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be on here. I appreciate what you do. So I look forward to listening to more of your future podcast and hearing some more input from other people in our profession. So again, thank you very much for what you do. Oh, awesome. Thanks, Dr. Tanabe. Uh, listeners, if you wanted to keep up with us, subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Leave us a five-star review or even a written review. Those really help people find the podcast and kind of get some of these things out if you like the ideas we're talking about today. With that, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.